Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about Goldfinger, starring Sean Connery, Shirley Eaton, Gert Frobe, Honor Blackman, Harold Sakata, Bernard Lee, and Desmond Llewellyn, directed by Guy Hamilton. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. This is Arnie. Do you expect me to review this movie? <laughs> no, Mr. Arnie, I expect you to die. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> This is Goldfinger. This is the third Bond movie. And of course, this is, pardon the pun, to a lot of people, the gold standard of Bond movies. This is the movie that turned James Bond into a phenomenon. This is the Sean Connery movie that I know as a Bond fan, I go back to the most. But it has been many years since I've returned to this movie because I had seen it so many times as a younger man. Have you guys seen this movie before this recording, or is this the first time? No, I definitely have seen most of these movies in childhood. This has most of the scenes that I remember coming from Bond, like, oh, which one was the one with this? Which one was the one with that? They're all Goldfinger, actually. This one has the most retainable memories from a distinctly Bond adventure. It isn't the one I've seen the most, but it is the one I think of the most when I think of Bond. Agree completely. That's exactly where... I'm at as well is, again, as I've said on all of these podcasts, I watched all these in high school. I remembered certain things, like I mentioned the James Bond VHS series that I saw advertised, and it had that line, No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. I thought that was from Dr. No, and we're watching Dr. No, I'm like, where'd that line go? It wasn't in there. And it's here. And, of course, I remember Odd Job. It's here. And I've seen the Austin Powers films recently, and they're here. Yes. So yeah, this is one where it's like, okay, this is all the cliches in one two-hour film. Nice, neat little package. Well, again, this is the one that made the biggest impression. This is the one that a lot of people, as you say, think of Bond. All of the elements that we've been talking about for the past two films, all of them are here, plus the ones that were missing to make what we call the Bond formula, and all the machine parts are working, and everything fits together for what they call the quintessential Bond film. This is the movie that made Bond films Bond films. And movies like True Lies, for example, borrow from this, and people still were entertained by simply taking off a wetsuit and there's a tuxedo underneath. Many, many years later, people don't care it came from here in the 90s. I know I didn't. But when you watch it here, it's still a great moment because it's James Bond. This movie has so many, as you call them, cliches, but I want them there anyway. I don't care if it's a cliche. I'm enjoying that it's all in one place. Interesting enough, this has a new director. Terrence Young was responsible for From Russia With Love and Dr. No. They brought in a new guy here. I don't know why he got the gig. I don't know what Terrence Young 
was doing that was better, but man, did he lose out. We get <laughs> Guy Hamilton. The only other film that I know from his resume that doesn't have Bond in it is Remo Williams. Remember that one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with the scaffolding over the Statue of Liberty, right? Isn't that the legend begins and ends all at once? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Guy Hamilton took the reins because Terrence Young just was not available. That's the reason. No Oops, story. You lose. <laughs> Man, if you ever wanted to be involved with one, this is the one. But yeah, I think he brings a different sensibility this time. Terrence Young, I felt in the last movies, even in the campier Doctor No, he was trying to do a serious spy movie. And this, well, we can talk about how serious we're all to take it, I guess, when we get into a plot. Arnie, you want to give us that? James Bond is assigned by MI6 to investigate Arik Goldfinger, a jeweler suspected of international gold smuggling. But the mission turns personal for Bond when Goldfinger, upset at Bond for disrupting his cheating at cards, kills Bond's latest girl by painting her gold with paint and causing her skin to suffocate. Talk about that. Bond follows Goldfinger to his base and is captured and about to be killed, but dropping the name Operation Grand Slam earns him a reprieve as he convinces Goldfinger he knows more than he does and is worth more alive than dead, for as long as Bond lives, the other MI6 operatives will be held at bay. And in Goldfinger's captivity, Bond learns Goldfinger's real plan, a raid on Fort Knox. But his goal is not to steal the gold in Fort Knox, but to detonate an atomic bomb which will radiate the gold, making it unusable and causing economic chaos and a huge increase in gold rarity and thus gold prices. But Bond is able to seduce Goldfinger's pilot, Pussy Galore, and turn her against her employer. She replaces the nerve gas Goldfinger intended to use to incapacitate the troops at Fort Knox with a harmless gas, enacting an elaborate ruse where Goldfinger thinks his plan is working, but in fact, ensnaring the criminal. Bond defeats Goldfinger's henchmen electrocuting the Korean in the Fort Knox vaults, but Goldfinger escapes to attack Bond later on an airplane, shooting through a window and is sucked out of the plane's fuselage to his death, while Bond and Pussy parachute to safety as credits roll. Now, starting this movie, I had a big complaint. I was watching this movie and my eyes were rolling. His name's Goldfinger? Really? Goldfinger? Austin Powers made fun of this with Goldmember. I'm like, what a stupid frickin' name, Goldfinger. Oh, he likes gold, his name's Goldfinger. I had to Google to see if Goldfinger was indeed a real name. It turns out it is, and I had no clue that there are people out there. Yes, Mr. Goldfinger. <laughs> One of the top hits is Dr. Stephen Goldfinger, and I can only hope fate made him a proctologist. <laughs> <laughs> I understand your point about it kind of sounds over the top, but I never questioned it once in my entire life that the guy's name is Goldfinger. The point of view we're both coming to on this, I guess, is a little bit different. I accept it completely. The man's name is Goldfinger. Never even occurred to me that people in real life who have that name. What I could not find is anyone with the last name Galore. Oh. Or first name Pussy. I'm sure that's a nickname. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it's commonly used. Wasn't there some movie, Kitty Galore, recently? Yes. Kitty Galore. I think it was that Cats and Dogs thing. Oh, yeah. You know what, though? The way Sean Connery says it, I thought she was pushy galore. Like, she was just really pushy. Maybe that's why it got by the censors. I don't know how they were able to get away with some of this stuff in 1964, but... You couldn't get away with it now. No. Well, they have some more ribald names coming. Yes, they do. They actually did have a tiny bit of trouble with the censors. There was a news article on either a newspaper or a television, I can't remember which, that quickly printed the name and had no problem with it or actually said it out loud. 
And then they said, if, well, if this news source, like the New York Times, can say it, why would you have a problem with us saying it in the movie? And they conceded. They were proactive and got it in the paper or the television, wherever it was, and the censors had no choice but to go along with it. Was the newspaper article saying, can you believe they named a character Pussy Galore? <laughs> it might have been an article about the actual book. They were very vague on it. Honor Blackman had given an interview, and she mentioned it in passing on the commentary. Kennedy had been assassinated, the nation was grieving, women were burning their bras, the whole place was kind of blowing up in 64. I think this just probably got by. Someone dropped the ball. Who could care about a little pussy, huh? We talked about how we get this jumbled. I couldn't believe this movie had pushy galore, because I really thought that would be Octopussy. I just thought that was where Pussy Galore was, was she was the villain of Octopussy. I guess I gotta wait to get there. Yeah, Octopussy is a villain in Octopussy. That's her name. But yes, it's here, it's where it came first, and they set the precedent for later on with Octopussy. Well, let's get right into it. I think we need to talk about top of the movie with the actual beginning, the actual pre-credit sequence. This thing is the first pretty much self-contained Bond adventure to start off the movie. It's wonderful, this sequence, when he goes to Mexico and blows up the factory. Did you guys enjoy all the little subtleties of the seagull on his head and the plastic explosives and what step-by-step as it went through the Bond pantheon of a Bond adventure? Did you guys get into this scene? This is how I think of a Bond movie beginning, that it is the tail end of another adventure that we don't need to know about. We just need to know that Bond is going to wrap something up here, and usually with a good joke and an action scene. And... Well, I don't know what he's blowing up. This is Mexico. This is somewhere where there's a revolutionary taking power. And I don't know. Can anyone tell me specifics about what's going on here? It's a heroin ring. He's blowing up drugs. I think they said something about smuggling heroin and bananas. Oh, yeah. I heard heroin and bananas. It sounded like a good snack. (laughs) People crave it after a while, though. My favorite part of the entire sequence, besides, of course, the wetsuit with a tuxedo underneath, is how he sees the reflection of the villain in her eyeball. What's funny is, Stuart told me about that being from Bond before I'd ever seen this, as it was cribbed in a Twin Peaks episode. There you go. Yes, this is one of those things that I just remembered. I couldn't have told you which movie was the one where Bond saw his assassin coming at him in the eyes of a duplicitous lover. It's this one, and it's right here in this opening. But yeah, I always thought this was really cool. And it's Connery not being so nice to women. It's kind of a shock that he turns her around. But she doesn't get killed. She just gets clubbed. I think she's alive at the end of this. It would have been something else, I think, if she had actually gotten killed. But Stuart, she was keeping Bond busy so the guy could hit him. And in fact, getting his gun away from him in a ruse, which I thought was pretty clever. Right. Pretending the gun hurt her. I'm not saying she doesn't deserve it. I'm saying that particularly in this age, I think they would be careful about a burly man killing a attractive, comely woman. I mean, we'll watch it through the series. I don't think Bond kills too many women, at least not in the beginning. He didn't kill the lady with the shoes. That was the lover. He didn't kill the photographer. Nope. It's kind of taboo at this point. The worst he's done is slap Tatiana. And that was pretty bad, but this is one step worse, but forgivable. I wasn't so into this opening scene the way you guys are. I mean, to me, these opening scenes are to set a mood, but this 1960s action just really isn't working for me. I wasn't into the explosions. I need characterization and setup like we had in From Russia with Love in order to enjoy it. So action for action's sake, works for me with a more modern aesthetic. Here, this is the time where I'm settling in and just getting the mood, but 
I'm not enjoying these scenes for these scenes. I'm just viewing them as an appetizer for the main course, and I'm not going to judge the main course by this, no matter how good the Crab Rangoon may be. And then going right into that, you have the first big, bombastic Bond song, Goldfinger. This Shirley Bassey rendition is... Awful? Yeah, it's been covered so many times, and people always say that no one does it as good as Shirley did it. And for the life of me, (laughs) I never liked the rendition of this song. It's just a weird song. I just don't like this song. You guys are seriously going to knock Goldfinger? One of the best movie songs ever. You're seriously going to knock this song. It's terrible. It is awful. You are out of your mind. (laughs) It's like a parade of elephants charging. It's fantastic. I had the record of this as a kid. I played it incessantly. Your parents must have hated you, or you must have hated them. That fantastic voice. It's like she's casting a spell. I mean, this song is tremendous. I'm going to go ahead and review all the songs as we go through the movie. I'll probably rank them at the end, and I'll be surprised if this is not number one. I can think of only one that may unseat it, but you guys are nuts. This is gold. This is a fantastic (laughs) piece of music. The horns are a cacophony. Maybe it's because of the time, and I don't really like this era of music anyway. But, I mean, later on in this movie, Connery says it's like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. I'm like, or your opening song without earmuffs. You know, Stuart, throughout the movie, they use, John Barry is wonderful with this. He uses the motifs of the song. It's fantastic. That wow, wow, it works great. It's also fantastic in this fantastic Shirley Bassey song. <laughs> you know, I'm a Bond fan. I'm the Bond fan here on the podcast. And I got to tell you, I watched this movie and this song is there. And I think it sets a nice mood. As Arnie said, the opening scene sets a mood. I think the opening song does as well. I like the pictures on the hand, the gilded lady, all that kind of stuff is fine. But this is not one of my favorite songs. And it's because sometimes I feel like someone is a screeching bird at certain points. She is not my favorite singer, and I just do not enjoy this as much as most people do. I can see why people would like it in relation to this movie, but that's the only reason I could see it. If this was just a single, and instead of Goldfinger, it was Moon River, it would not be a hit. Only in relation to the movie that people like it, and I don't like it. I don't think I like too many Bond songs, honestly. That is evident. That is very clear, (laughs) sir. Because if you did, you would recognize your mistake. This encapsulates 60s spy themes. It is the standard. There will be many, many other women that will try to emulate and imitate. They won't do better than what Shirley does here. Well, you know, Stuart, you're making a very good point. And you're right about how it made that genre, and it's the gold standard again. Here's that word again. I'm just telling you, I don't like it. (laughs) All that could be true. I acknowledge it's one of the better songs of Bonds, but it's not one of my favorites. It's hard to listen to for me. It is hard on the ears. It is an ugly song. I can't put it any other way. And I think that you saying you played it over and over, I've been known to annoy Marjorie by putting Surfing Bird as my ringtone just because she gets so sick of it. I could imagine this song would trump Surfing Bird if played repeatedly. I want to point out very quickly, though, as we move into the movie, we always talk about how the pre-credit sequence is usually self-contained. But what I love about this is Bond tells us that he's hopping a plane to Miami, and that's why he is in Miami at the beginning of the actual movie. Sometimes they don't do that. 
Here they do, and it's nice. If you think about Indiana Jones movies, the ones that are successful with their first sequences, there's a small link, something you might need to know later or do need to know later, involved there. Here is the smallest of tangential links, but it's there, and it's nice, and it works. You don't need it, but here I was grateful for it, because why else would Bond be in Miami to meet up with Felix and see Goldfinger for the first time? In his golden pajamas. (laughs) Yeah. This guy is obsessed. I wonder if it was his birth name or if he just changed it to that because he likes gold so much. I think that if you are named Goldfinger, so many people are probably going to give you golden things or harass you about gold to the point that it will become an obsession. I think that's just the way that it is. There was a kid in our class, Arnie, that was named Armstrong. Of course he had to work out. I just think sometimes your last name fates you. Yeah, Goldfinger... Of course, he was going to be a gold smuggler. One of my favorite parts of this opening scene is that almost everybody there is this beautiful person or a model or in a swimsuit and all that thing. And here comes this heavyset guy walking down the stairs. And Felix Leiter is the oldest guy there. And the spies are the ones who stick out like sore thumbs. And they're supposed to be spies. I think they stick out like sore thumbs because they're about four feet away from the projected backdrop. Yeah, they did every single insert shot. None of these people were in Miami except for Felix in the opening shot. Everybody else did it at Pinewood on a river projection. And my God, is it obvious. I'm okay with that, but couldn't they have projected Jack Lord into this? When did they decide to trade out Felix for somebody from Barney Miller? I mean, this guy looks 20 years older than the guy in the Dr. No movie. Jack Lord wanted some moolah. They said no. Oh, well, I guess they didn't want to give up the gold on him, but I missed him. (laughs) I did, too. I didn't like this Felix as much. I really like Jack Lord because of Hawaii Five-0. He brought some cachet to that role that this guy did not. I think what they do by making him shabby, it just makes Connery that much more attractive. And of course, America's not going to steal any of the limelight here from the Brits. I mean, they got nothing to worry about, as you say. Every other person on screen, which is mostly women, are fawning, and you don't see any of them going for Felix. Right. So I'm confused. What exactly is Bond supposed to be investigating when he screws up Goldfinger cheating at cards? He has been told that he has to find out how Goldfinger is smuggling gold out of Africa. That they know he gets it out. They don't know how. So he's just watching everything that he does. That he's pinpointed him cheating at cards just seems to be a way that they tell us very early that this is a bad guy. He's classically a villain, heavy set and a cheater, and he's going to do something really horrible to a woman early on. They set it up in all different kinds of ways to let you know that this guy is bad because they have to give you a better reason than is given in the beginning why Connery would want to stop him. Embezzling gold, that's not a great enemy, but someone that's actually going to plate a woman in gold and your lover at that, I think that is a reason that gives Connery some stakes here. I do like that Bond gets him. Bond flusters him and gets under his skin. It's kind of cool that Bond is able to beat him so quickly, but of course, Goldfinger punches right back. And it becomes a real nice rivalry, but that's what these scenes are doing, and it really sets it up for later in the movie. So... He's so pissed off about this, he sends Oddjob to do the least efficient murder ever. But the sexiest. (laughs) Well, yes. It sends a point. Yeah, there's no mistaking anybody else doing this. This wasn't Blofeld. (laughs) It definitely could have only been Goldfinger. It's iconically wonderful. I don't know 
If you could actually suffocate this way, though... You cannot. Let me just be the first to tell you, unless you paint your mouth and nostrils shut, you cannot suffocate. This does not happen to cabaret dancers nationwide. <laughs> no. The Blue Man Group gets some acne. I've known a couple, but they do not <laughs> asphyxiate. <laughs> yes, body paint can wreak havoc on your pores, but they cannot kill you. But, Arnie, really, if you're going to go down this road, you are going to really spend most of the Bond series with your arms crossed. This is the point that they're telling you, we're no longer going to play with a real spy adventure. We are now in kitsch. This is camp. This is spy parody. This is a sexcapade. And we want to kill this beautiful woman in a sexy way, not in a practical way. Here's my question. Am I supposed to be laughing at it? Because that's where I'm at. Is it so campy? Is this Batman 66? Ha ha. Isn't this movie really ridiculous? Because that's where I'm at with the body paint murder. Yeah, I think it's ridiculous. I don't know that it is as yuck-filled as Batman 66. But yeah, of the same era, of the same sensibility. The idea of making something at once absurd and plays differently to different ages. When I was a kid, I thought it was horrific. I was like, oh my god. And I don't think I understood it was body paint. I thought he had actually gotten melted liquid gold and poured it over her and it had burned her into a statue or something. I don't know what I thought, but I did not judge the impracticality of the assassination the way I do now. Now I recognize that this movie is putting TNA and camp ahead of logic. It's telling you, go with it or not, I am going with it. Yes, and I was about to say something similar there, Stuart. I always have a negative connotation with the word camp, even though it can be a lot of fun. I usually think people use it in a negative way. And here I think the humor, the fun of it, is not necessarily supposed to like be knee-slappingly funny, but it's supposed to be a fun way to do it. I think you're on to something there, Stuart, but I never took it as funny haha. But we're in a movie here that a guy throws a hat and they can chop off statues or he can crush a golf ball. This movie is bigger than life, and this is one of these things in it that is that way. And so, yeah, you have to go with this fantasy of a spy world kind of thing, or you don't go with it. And it's part of the fun of a James Bond movie that they can have these sorts of elements. But I do think they're playing it a little more down to earth, but they certainly are acknowledging the humor of everything. You see what I mean? If they went for comedy, if they were going for comedy, then it would be a different feel entirely to this thing. I think they're going for comedy, but I don't think Connery is doing Adam West. He's smiling. He spends most of the movie smirking, and he's letting you know that he's in on the joke, but he is not underlining the absurdity the way that Adam West would with his deadpan. Right. Okay. But would you call this a comedy? Because I wouldn't call this a comedy. There certainly is humor, and it certainly is a fun take. I'd say it's splitting the difference. Not a complete comedy, but yeah, you can't take it seriously either. It's falling in this middle ground. One of you said you either go with it or you don't. I'm not the James Bond fan here. I'm not a spy movie fan. And if you want it to be just taken as a standing fact, ridiculous crap's going to happen. So let's not even question it. It's just the world in which James Bond lives in that everything is ridiculous. Then okay, I'll <laughs> take that as a given and move on. But this bothers me because everybody's standing around so seriously. Honestly, I took it as everybody on the set believes if we body paint you, you could die. That's the way the lines are delivered. And I'm here to tell you, no. 
Oh, this is going to be such a long series for you. It really is. I feel like <laughs> this is such Marvel karma payback coming back at you. I love it. I never once loved when you didn't like a movie, I want to say. I never took glee in your pain. So I just want to say, though, Arnie, that there are limits in every James Bond era. You cannot go too far. There has to be a middle ground. Okay, so just so I understand, as the newbie to Bond, body paint death is not too far. I just need to know where the line is. I think also it's the tone of the movie. It's how it's going. What it does for the plot and the story. I think, again, he's painting this woman in gold paint. And yes, Arnie, everyone thinks that you can die this way. That's what the movie's telling us. And I didn't know you couldn't. Again, I went with it. He wanted Bond to see this woman painted this way and say, don't mess with me, dude. I'm not to be trifled with. That's why he did it. It wasn't about being efficient. It's a message. Well, I'm happy to say that after we get past the body paint scene, this movie does take a market upward turn for me. Bond returns to the headquarters. We get to see Q Division for the first time, which I know very well. And we get to see all this test equipment, some working, some not. James Bond gets the car that I now know where the entire inspiration for the video game Spy Hunter came from. It is this one car. This is one of the most famous cars in movie history. This thing is amazing. Yeah, this is his special trick. Last time it was a suitcase. Now all the tricks come in car form. Ejector seat, sonar, smoke, oil slicks. Yeah, it's a great invention. I don't have the knowledge to know if anybody else had pimped out a car like this before, but I can tell you that this seems to be the blueprint for every spy car to come after. Who wouldn't want this car? Again, this feels like a way of taking the luxury items of the 60s and just making them that much more exotic and ridiculous and fantastical. Sure. I had a Ford Escort that gave a smokescreen every time I drove it. I didn't necessarily like that. And it left oil slicks. <laughs> well, then you're halfway there to being Bond, aren't you? <laughs> Maybe you should just work on your Scottish accent. And I remember the first time I saw this movie, when he pops the girl's tires, I'm like, hey, they stole that from Greece. Yes, the hubcaps can take out rival cars on the road. I'm telling you, 100% of this is in the video game Spy Hunter. <laughs> there you go. Spy Hunter, just watch this movie and it's like, that would be a fun game. But what's funny is they use the Peter Gunn theme music instead of the James Bond theme music. But I'm loving Q Division. I'm loving Money Penny's back. And she tosses Bond's hat instead of him. She's showing that she plays on that level. Once they get back to headquarters, he gets his mission. He goes off to play Goldfinger in golf. I'm into this movie. I have gotten past the body paint. Terrific. Good to hear. And I love that Connery played with Q, and Q just does not like Bond, and I love it started here. It's a tradition that goes through many Bonds. I love that Q's a bureaucrat who just doesn't understand field work, and he's like, try to bring them back in good condition, and Bond's more concerned about survival and the mission than Q's bookkeeping. We also get the first time that M sort of doubts Bond. He almost wants to take him off the case because he thinks he might be clouded by anger. And this is something we're going to see in the later Bonds, I think. But the whole idea is, he's so pissed what happened to Jill getting turned into gold that he thinks that vengeance will be ahead of queen and country. You know, I think that it is the vengeance that drives this. Because he has no real beef with Goldfinger. There's no reason to go after him for smuggling gold. That's kind of small potatoes, really. This is a mission that's rather beneath Bond otherwise. Yeah, but I don't get the... Bond's upset about the woman. Bond may be upset 
that his pride was wounded and somebody got the upper hand and knocked him out. But by this point, and we're only in movie three, there have been so many women, he doesn't really care about this one. Well, I think as an audience, we're meant to, and that's why they do it the way they do. It's why we endure a golf-off between the two. (laughs) Not exactly the toughest scenario, but, you know, Goldfinger probably couldn't have done any other sport. It works. Goldfinger, let's talk about that casting. Because if you're looking to cast a dastardly supervillain, I don't know that this is what I'd go for. (laughs) The pudgy old man. Well, he's not that old. He's middle-aged. He's upper side of middle-aged. He's probably 40, 50 years old. I think he casts a large shadow over many other Bond villains to come. I think this guy and what he does to Bond is a wonderful character. I think he's a wonderful villain. I don't think I agree with you. He has this need to be Mr. Gold, and nothing is going to stand in his way. It's better than taking the world hostage, but he's willing to do that. This guy has a mission. The prototypical Bond villain. He's not trying to use a laser beam to disrupt a rocket launching. He has plans for himself that he needs to get done, and no one's going to stand in his way, not even this MI6 guy. I love it. I'm not complaining about his place in the script, his plot, the way he's written. It's merely the casting. When we were doing our Batman retrospective, we talked about how a fist fight between Jack Nicholson and Michael Keaton seemed very one-sided. Here, this guy is no physical match for Bond. This guy does not have any danger. He's got odd job around to do it for him, but... As the main guy himself, he kind of reminds me of my grandpa, a little bit befuddled, wearing flood pants in the golf rink with a silly hat. He does not exude evil. I love his plot. I love the way he's written in the script. It is pure casting and wardrobe that I'm questioning. Question. Is he Swiss? The accent leads me to believe that he's German. And of course, Bond lures him in by putting out that Nazi gold as bait. So I almost felt like they were maybe playing off post-World War II feelings about Germany. But then again, his headquarters are in Geneva. So I don't know if he's Swiss. I don't know if he's German. But there's a long history of what I will call Euro-trash villains in spy and action movies. I think this guy is a blueprint for it. An unattractive European with an odd accent who's totally defined by greed. Yeah, I think that this works. He isn't very physically imposing, but you're right. That's why he has Odd Job. And Odd Job is, I'll go ahead and say it now, the one to beat for henchmen. I don't know that we're going to see a better henchman. I look forward to that contest. But right now, he's pulled way out ahead. I love Odd Job. What a great character. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Odd Job is tremendous. He is so much fun to watch. He doesn't say a word the whole movie, but my eyes never leave him. He is just such a great, expressive actor. Yeah, he's actually a wrestler, believe it or not. Hawaiian, not Korean, like the character. And the presence this guy has on screen is unbelievable. And you believe that this guy uses a hat to kill people because of this actor. He completely sells it to you. It's wonderful. He does. I never once questioned the killer hat. It's a wonderful hat. He's got the build of a sumo wrestler almost. So you think that he could walk around all day with what must be steel or cement on top of his head, just crushing anyone else's temples, it would be fine on him. He's got the build for it. He's got the aim. He crushes the golf balls into dust. The physical imposing quality, and to do it without saying a word, a brilliant choice. I also like the fact that they made him North Korean. I think that that would have been timely. You know, the Korean War would have been the most recent conflict at that time, and it's a great way of bringing that in. 
all the other guys that he has, there's all of these Chinese men, right, that are in blue jumpsuits. They're the ones actually running the Auric Enterprise factory. They're the ones that he's actually going to use to break into Fort Knox once he finally goes into Operation Grand Slam mode. It's kind of strange, I suppose, in a way to think that communist China would team up with Switzerland and or Germany. But then his other major player, the other henchman compared to Oddjob, is the pilot, Pussy Galore, an Englishwoman. So I don't know that we can read too much into these nationalities at that point. Right. Her role is less clear. I feel like she is less invested in the crime aspect. It's her and her girl pilots out there in entertaining the crowds with aerial stunts. And she just so happens to be funded by a man that wants to wreck the world economy and radiate Fort Knox. But they all know what they're doing during Operation Grand Slam. They understand that they're gassing Kentucky. They're not into it, but they're going along with it. Yeah, but you know what? They do something funny here. You know, I always remembered it as knockout gas, and they spray the whole area. And in my childhood memory, I thought that that it had actually worked. I had forgotten that it was all a switch that happens later. I thought for sure that they had used real knockout gas. But it's pointed out at some point, some mobsters that had been previously funding Goldfinger come to collect, and he gasses them with the same gas. It's poisonous. What he's going to release is really going to kill. I don't think the girls know that. I think that if they're saying Operation Betty Buy or whatever it's called, I don't think that they actually think they're going to kill a town full of people. Just to help your point out earlier, you were talking about how this guy is of German descent and he is attracted by the Nazi gold. He also locks a bunch of people in a room and gasses them to death. Although I don't understand because the ones he was going to gas agreed to go along with his plan. He gassed them. The one guy who's like, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, he kills him too. Why bother giving a sales pitch if you're just going to kill them anyway? Why not say, I need to use the bathroom, I'll be right back with your money, and then kill them all? It made no freaking sense. <laughs> if he built that whole diorama that comes out of the pool table in the floor, you gotta show it to somebody. Those characters are clearly here just so that we can finally understand. Because up until that point, we only know that he's smuggling gold by turning them into parts for his car, his Rolls Royce is filled with this gold, and that's how he's getting around. Again, a minor crime. It's not filled with gold, is it? I thought it was made of gold. Yes. It's made of gold. That's how he smuggles it, and it's a brilliant idea that other movies have used since. Back to that scene about the guys getting killed. You are absolutely right. Is there just for the audience, and listening to the commentary, all the guys were talking about how all oh, the director and the set designer did all these really cool things in this scene, all these moving parts, so the audience would not notice on the first viewing that this scene makes absolutely no sense. I think they failed there, too. I think we all noticed how it didn't make any sense. But we're also putting in our modern sensibility, what The Incredibles called monologuing. Here is in full force, the James Bond cliche, they need this scene. And what I like about it the most is that Bond overhears it this time. But yes, the scene is completely superfluous and not there for anyone but the audience. I'm very thankful that it's there so we can understand what the plan is. Later on, I mean, the plot goes even bigger. Here, robbing Fort Knox, that's child's play. Eventually, you find out he's got a nuclear bomb, and that's where you realize he truly is a villain worthy of fighting James Bond. He's Blofeld level. Yes, I think that it has started from a petty fight over a girl and cheating at cards, and has really come into this man-to-man battle between Bond and Goldfinger over, yeah, the whole fate of the world, East and West. If he is allowed to destroy Fort Knox and all of the gold that America uses, then it will render the dollar 
and the pound irrelevant and Goldfinger will set the standard with communist China, presumably, as well. Now, of course, what they couldn't have known is that in seven years, Nixon would essentially do this anyway by eliminating the gold standard. The dollar is no longer measured against gold anyways. You know, seven years later, they couldn't have made this movie. But at this time right now, this would have been hot stuff. But yeah, the plot really evolves. And I like that about the movie. Sometimes they give too much away. But here we find out at just the right time, every time what's going on. I've got to say one thing that ticks me off as an American, I can say this, is how useless Felix continues to be in these plots. I think he spends most of the movie at a Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) (laughs) And it took me a while to even understand why. I'm like, why is he just eating fried chicken all the time? And then I realized, oh, they're trying to characterize Kentucky. Fort Knox is in Kentucky. They don't know what the hell to say about Kentucky. This is the least glamorous area that Bond has ever visited. So everyone has to drink mint juleps, raise horses for the Kentucky Derby, and eat KFC. That's how they characterize Kentucky. That was kind of amusing. At least they weren't in a tobacco field. I mean, that's the next step. They could have gone more glamorous with the Southern Belle type thing. No, they went fried chicken. Like I said, you know, in Dr. No, he spent most of the time on a boat letting quarrel, you know, the native go get killed. And here, yeah, they're just sitting here chewing on some chicken. They go to see if Bond needs any help. They see him with pussy. They're like, nah, he's fine. I mean, really, Felix has yet to play a real factor in this. I appreciate that they want to extend the effort and make this an international spy story. But again, Bond, Britain, it's the only one that matters here. He's the one that factors into the plot. Although I would also argue Connery really doesn't accomplish a whole lot in this movie. You guys notice that? He spends a lot of time captured. He gets told a lot of stuff. At the end of the day, he doesn't even dismantle the Bond. Connery is kind of reactionary here. He's a stud and gets to swoon in all the luxury items and the girls, but I don't think that he does a whole lot as an agent. Well, his magical penis is what turns Pusha into the good side. I mean, (laughs) it is that magical penis. He sleeps with a woman and immediately her allegiances change. But I agree with you, his role in the second half of the movie, I mean, there's the great scene He's captured. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. I love that scene. Edge of my seat, that scene, thinking, how is he going to get out of that? I mean, I know he's going to get out of it, but I really was in suspense, which is why it was so goddamn disappointing when at the one hour mark, and he's just in captivity for the next hour that this movie took a nosedive off a cliff for me, like one of those stock footage cars they used in the car chase scene in the first movie. This movie grinds to a halt as he just wanders around seducing Kushe and watching everything happen around him. I find the second half of this movie almost intolerable. Which you weren't so tolerant of the first part here. I think I know where this is going. So basically what you're telling me is you like that middle part with the golf game and in Switzerland when he's tooling around the factory and the sister comes out. Yeah, and the car chase. How anticlimactic is that? I couldn't believe that's his biggest gadget. He whips it all out right there in the first hour. I felt that was the climax of the movie, that car. But no, it's right there. Ejector seat and all. The ejector seat he's never supposed to use. Supercar defeated only by a mirror. (laughs) Those golden headlights, very tricky. Yeah, the car scene is certainly there to show off the gadgets, and it's a wonderful way they set us up earlier in the show to tell us what's going to happen, and they show it to us. That's really kind of cool. I want to bring up a combination of what you just said. Bond does sit around 
for the second half of the movie. You're absolutely right. And what I see in it is that he uses his car and he gets strapped to the laser. Up to that point, it looked like Bond was ahead of the game. This guy, this big fat guy that you complained about earlier in this movie that does not look like a much of a villain to Bond physically or anything like that, he has shut this man down. And that is something that very few, if any other James Bond villains have done. And that is why I think this villain is so big in the James Bond mythos. It's remarkable, in fact. It's incredibly weird that they would take their hero and shut him down for half the movie. All he does in the second half of the movie is seduce pussy. But to have this car chase in the middle and have all this stuff happen there is to make sure that we get the point that Goldfinger bested Bond. He wins. I agree. Makes you ask the question, why keep Bond alive? Oh, I asked that question a good 50 times to myself while the second half of the movie went. It's a classic Bond villain mistake. You know, you wish that some of the newer villains would go back to Goldfinger and the older ones and be like, okay, I'm not going to explain my whole plot to him. I'm not going to keep him in captivity. I'm not going to shoot him with a tranquilizer dart. I'm going to shoot him with a poison dart. You'd think that they'd go that route. The only thing I can say to it is, one, this is camp. And two, it must be very lonely. You know, you have it all figured out. You're going to take over the whole world and wreck economies. You want to brag. You want somebody to recognize. Bond is the human face of the West, and you're defeating it. And that's why you'd keep him around. You'd want to have him chained to the nuke in the basement of Fort Knox when the bomb goes off to really send the message. You just want to see his face. I gave that as a good explanation why Red kept Bond alive long enough to explain his whole plot in From Russia with Love. But here, I don't buy it. And you say that Goldfinger bested Bond. Really, if Goldfinger had completely bested Bond, Bond would be cut in half. Bond put enough fear in Goldfinger that Goldfinger felt he couldn't kill Bond. As far as someone around, Goldfinger, the one place where he keeps losing is he's trying to seduce Pussy, and Pussy keeps shooting him down. Well, there's this undertone in the movie. I have not read the book. From what I understand, it's blatant in the book that Pussy is a lesbian. So that's a really magic penis. Right. (laughs) It's the old Kevin Smith, all a woman needs is a good deep dicking to turn straight. Well, you get that. I mean, all her girls are blonde versions of herself, and they seem to have this bond. I wouldn't say it's obvious. You know where I really got the reading is that the fight he has in the stables with her are really reminiscent of a Connery movie that he had just made with Hitchcock called Marnie. And the plot of that movie, believe it or not, is that Sean Connery marries a lesbian and then has to turn her straight. Or at least that's the subtext of that movie. And there's a lot of visual cues to Marnie. You know, she rode horses and there is this whole horse stable thing. And so that's kind of where I was picking it up more than necessarily anything that was happening in the movie per se. It just kind of read that way to me, but I wouldn't say it was obvious. I agree. And watching it now, I got it or got the subtext of it and noticed how they weren't flat out saying it. She did have a line, your charms won't work on me or something like that. Pretty much broadcasts it if you want to hear it. But as a kid and even as a teenager, I didn't even pick up on that at all. I mean, why would I? But now as an adult, it's different. It's part of the sexist attitude, too. If a woman's going to fly a plane, well, of course, she's a lesbian. It's just like the evil henchwoman club in the last one. There's a woman in authority, if she's powerful, if she's a match for Bond, then obviously there must be something wrong with her. You know, I think (laughs) that that is what they're trying to sell here. It's just a very dated concept about sexuality. But yeah, she is 
a pilot. I thought that was impressive. She's not a stewardess. She's a pilot. And so, yeah, they kind of play that she is equal man to Bond. And they went with this actress on purpose. At this time, she had done the Avengers television show. So she had done the judo on the television. She was a well-known commodity at this point. And so using her in this role, they had no one else in mind. And it was a very definite choice for this woman to play this role. I'm going to say I never got gay off of her. Now that you're saying it, I can see it, especially in the time. I took it as finally there's a woman who's an equal to Bond, even more than Tatiana. I mean, when we started with Honey on the beach and she was just such a useless character, I like to see a woman that can get Bond's goat as much as Bond can get hers. And here, yeah, the magic deep dicking and it's over and she loses it. But I like that she can toss him just as much as he can toss her. I thought it was just an equality thing. I now can see what you're saying. It may have been more obvious to the time where gay was more subtle and more frowned upon, but I don't think it has to be there. I prefer not to think that Sean Connery is what all the Catholics are looking for, the cure for gayness. If you sleep with Sean Connery, boom, you're straight. So Scientology has him in a room upstairs. And they use him. <laughs> That's why he can't make movies anymore. He's right. too busy straightening people. <laughs> also, they have the forceful kiss in the barn. See, that bothered me a little bit, though. And I'm trying not to be too PC. I just hate political correctness. But I do remember something I saw in the 80s, back when moonlighting was big, when David finally slept with Maddie. Maddie slapped him a few times, kept saying no, he kept persisting, finally she gave in and embraced him, and it was this big romantic scene. The very next day on the Today Show, there's somebody there going, he raped her! And I look at that, I'm like, not really, but if you look at kind of the whole no means no date rape type of thing, yeah, we just watched James Bond rape a woman. It's a come down from Marnie. Like I said, if you go see that one, there's actually a wedding night rape that's pretty explicit, and this feels skewed in a way that I kept feeling like Hugh Hefner had an involvement in the script. You know, it just feels like, uh, you know, a guy that doesn't have to do much other than smile, drink, and the women will come to him and the problems will solve themselves. And yes, any obstacle, including lesbianism, can be thwarted if you're just forceful and manly enough. Yeah. And in my research for this movie, they mentioned that this sort of scene was more common at this time and before, but somewhere in the late 70s when awareness about what rape is and things like that became more in the public eye or more talked about or things like that. If you want to know how radically things have changed and been changed by the women's movement, here's a perfect time capsule. This right. was the attitudes of the time. Their point was these sort of scenes just went out of fashion because of the way the world thought about these sort of things. But you can find this scene in many other movies before and during this time. We're not supposed to take it as rape. We're supposed to take it as he gets her to come around to his way. It's not necessarily rape, but... Because she relents and goes with it, she completely betrays Goldfinger. She allows them to trade out the gas, and she's actually flying an American plane at the end of this. I mean, she has totally flipped. I don't know what her nationality or whether she was Spectre or an independent contractor, but... She is totally James Bond's girl at the end of this story. Indeed. And I'm going with the magic penis thing, but by the same token, it's a little convenient. It's like his superpower. If he can just sleep with a woman, all of a sudden, it's like the Pied Piper. She'll follow him anywhere and turn against her employer, and every loyalty will change. And notice, there is a woman here that does not sleep with Bond. It's the sister. 
the Golden Girl's sister comes back to kill Goldfinger on her own. He doesn't sleep with her. I thought it was kind of strange that they had the pair up that they do and they don't hook up. I think she and the girl on the plane are the only two women that he doesn't bed in the story. But not sleeping with Bond doesn't save her either. Well, the sister gets killed by Oddjob with the hat. And we'll see this a lot. Friends of Bond get killed. <laughs> Except for Felix Leiter, who gets a pass for almost the entire series. Whoever befriends Bond does not survive the movie. As memory serves, and I'll be watching as we go forward, there's always a girl that gets with Bond that dies, and then there's a second girl that comes along and gets to live. So you always want to be the second Bond girl. Right, exactly. In this case, though, isn't she the third? Because the first one got knocked out in the pre credit scene. The second one got killed by paint, and then Pussy gets to live. I'm not really talking about the evil betrayer woman at the beginning. Okay. And a lot of girls that Bond sleeps with, of course, die. So it's like a horror movie in that. If you want to survive a Bond movie, don't sleep with Bond. In the first reel, you can't sleep with Bond. In the second reel, you can be the second girl of the movie. You can survive. We need to create some rules of Bond, and that seems to be a strong one. If you <laughs> want to get with Bond, at least wait until 90 minutes into the movie, and then it's safe. But up until that point, it is a sure guarantee you're going to get killed. So let's talk Fort Knox. What's fun about this scene at Fort Knox is when you talk about before how it's campy and over the top and it's supposed to be funny, the one time I actually laughed out loud is when we go into Fort Knox and there are actual stacks of gold everywhere. It wasn't put away. It was just stacked around for anyone to pick up and use or, you know, it's a paperweight or whatever they need to use it for. It could be like that. I've never seen it. It's kind of how I imagine forts to be. I could be totally wrong. I thought that's how it was supposed to be, Brock. <laughs> I thought so, too. <laughs> I really did. It's. I mean, what else are they supposed to do with them? I don't know. I mean, it's a it, fort. They're supposed to be hard to get to. Putting them in prison cells seems to work. Yeah, it's like Scrooge McDuck. You might as well just put a big bin out there. You can swim in it. But no one knows what's inside Fort Knox. They were not allowed in there. And so they have an idea of what it looks like in the outside. And they built the outside of the studio. But they just decided to make it, as the producer put it, a cathedral for gold. It's a gorgeous, huge, wonderful set. So that is not Fort Knox. They didn't do any location shooting for this? No. The outside, for the most of the time, when we actually have the laser and they're breaking in, that's a set. The guy's passing out. They did shoot on Fort Knox's property, and the flyovers, those were Fort Knox. But they got in trouble. They flew too low, and people got angry. But no one knows what inside Fort Knox looks like. I figured they couldn't get inside, and that had to be a set. You know what? That's one of the things I love about Bond movies. Even when the plots aren't working... I just enjoy kind of being in the moment, and it's just fun that we're kind of there. Even in Kentucky in 1964, it's just kind of fun to see. It's convincing in its own surrealistic little world. And I love the fight once we get inside. Ajab and Bond. Again, a high watermark, having a great henchman, and letting that henchman have a great fight. Yeah, Ajab's been kind of neutered the second hour. He's just been allowed to glower because Bond's in captivity. He's kind of under Goldfinger's protection. So now that he's actually given the approval to kill Bond by putting him down with the bomb and Odd Job gives that little smile, like, I finally get you, and then the final fight between them, very gratifying. Odd Job steals this movie from Connery, in my opinion. Favorite character of the movie. I love him. I think he might be going a little far, but I won't take anything away from Odd Job. It's a great fight. I love the fact that Bond gets his hat and he can't even throw it like Odd Job and it sticks and the bars, and he only wins the fight, really, because Ajab has cut an electrical power line that 
Bond then uses to fry the whole gates. And you'd think if anyone could throw a hat like Oddjob, it would be Bond. He's been throwing hats for four movies. <laughs> and he's throwing gold bullion at the guy. I mean, this fight is ridiculous. He's actually picking up bars of gold and hurling them. I'm like, you will never win this fight in that way, sir. You need to get your gun. But you gotta love how Oddjob just shakes off that gold. And he punches. Also, it's great. It's very reminiscent of the Raiders of the Lost Ark fight. And the only way Deanne Jones wins that is with a propeller. Here, it's with the electrocution on the gate. Yeah, Oddjob beats the crap out of him. It's wonderful fight. It's just a high mark of this movie. I have to say, though, that I was surprised that Oddjob was loyal to the end. He was locked in there to die with the bomb, and he was going to make sure that bomb went off. Yeah, does not get compromised, does not do anything that is avoids the plan. As crazy as that plan must be, you go into work tomorrow and your boss says, this is what we're doing, Fort Knox, radiation. Most people would walk away, but Oddjob's like, hey, I'm with you. I wish he could come back as a Bond villain in his own movie. I was surprised that he was killed here because I kind of remembered him as the villain who showed up at the very last scene, kind of like number four did last movie. I thought he was going to be the one to have the surprise last fight because he's the tough one. But no, after all said and done, it's Goldfinger who shows up for the last surprise attack. Yeah, what gives him the advantage is he has a golden gun, which will not be the last time. Yeah, I was like, they kind of stole from their own gimmick, right? The man with the golden gun is right here. The next guy just has another golden gun. And it's directed by the same guy. We'll get there. I'm curious to go back to that one. Wasn't a movie at the time, but was a book. Why do it here? Well, because this is the one they pull out all the stops. The kitchen sink is gold. Everything here is gold. They're going for it. And you know what? I appreciate it. I like the fact that they stop the bomb at 007 and we think it's all over. And yeah, Goldfinger has had a change of uniform and is now on the plane that Bond is using to fly back to London. I thought he was in the same uniform he was at Fort Knox. No, he switches outfits. Once he realizes that the military aren't knocked out, it's like a tearaway suit or something. All of a sudden, he is in uh, army fatigue. I love when he walks in with a gun pulled on Bond. And Bond is full of great one-liners in this movie. I really like the humor of his one-liners in this movie. He says, oh, Goldfinger, are you having lunch with the president too? That made me (laughs) laugh. (laughs) It was great. I love the delivery on it. Now, we talk a lot about special effects and things, and we've talked a lot about the front projection and rear projection of this movie. It does not look up to snuff. I kind of dig the effect here of Goldfinger getting sucked out of the plane. I like it more when the actual body gets sucked out as opposed to the floating Goldfinger who gets (laughs) like a floating paper mache him. Gold balloon. (laughs) I still dug it. (laughs) Oh, I dig it too. I think it's fun. And it's just one of those things. As a kid, I didn't know that about airplanes. It was a learning teaching moment. Like, oh, you never want to break the glass in an airplane. I thought you could stick your head out and yell at birds. I had no idea up until this point as a child about pressurization. And this was a shocking way of learning about it. It was almost a science experiment, really. But what's funny is I think I've seen this on Mythbusters, and it's not exactly true like that. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone ever screws up and opens the door while they're that high up, I will think of Goldfinger getting sucked out. Just to review, though, in these Bond movies so far, we've learned that you can die from a tarantula. Not true. You can be painted completely over your body since skin suffocation. Apparently not true. And you can get sucked out of an airplane and die. Apparently not true. So everything you learned, Stuart, as a kid, you have to question, is Bond the best way to learn these as a child? But these are my physics. This is how I think things work. It was all done here. I watched these movies as a kid. I don't know what to say. (laughs) 
<laughs> Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Goldfinger? Stuart. Yeah, uh, this is a strong recommend. Let me put it this way. From Russia with Love is a better movie. Goldfinger is a better Bond movie. This is what this series will become. This is the template. This is how I think of Bond movies working, their internal logic, their kinds of villains. This has the best moving parts of what I think of as being a classic Bond movie. There are a few exceptions. We'll encounter them, I'm sure, very soon. But for the most part, I think this is going to be one of the strongest movies we review here. But I do say, if you want a serious good spy movie, From Russia With Love is a better one. But yeah, Goldfinger, you'll hear no complaints from me. Start to finish, I think it's strong. The worst thing you could say about it is Bond doesn't do anything but sit back and smirk. But then again, so do I. So yeah, recommend. Arnie. Well, I'm not ready to give this movie the finger, gold or otherwise, but... I'll give it a weak recommend. Stuart, you say this is the best Bond movie, but I guess this is why, as a teenager and several times as an adult, I never stuck with Bond. I guess I'm not a Bond fan, much like you're not a superhero fan. So, seeing Connery smirk isn't enough. I love From Russia With Love. I thought that was a great movie with great characters, great lines, good action for the time. Here... I was really enjoying all of it. I made a big deal of the body paint just because I did want to set a standard for ridiculousness in this. But really, for the first hour of this movie, I was enjoying it as much as From Russia With Love. But the second hour of this movie, it ground to a halt. And I really had a problem with that second hour. I had a problem paying attention to that second hour. It really was a grind. I was so on the fence on whether or not I was going to give this movie a recommend at all. It is either going to be the weakest of not recommends or the weakest of recommends. The reason I'm giving it the thumbs up is there is fun here in that first hour. And really, the tipping point for me, Odd Job. I can't not recommend a movie with Odd Job. Odd Job was so much fun in this movie that any movie that has Odd Job in it will get a slight recommend. If they remake Man-Thing, where Man-Thing's fighting Odd Job, slight recommend. So, Arnie, you do know he is in one of those amazing Spider-Man TV episodes you saw. <laughs> slight recommend. <laughs> Godzilla versus Odd Job. Slight recommend. So, yes, I'm giving this movie a slight recommend. I do think it has a lot of problems. And I think, yeah, if I were into James Bond, perhaps the James Bondishness of it would be enough. But as it is, here, nothing felt fresh because even the stuff I didn't remember has just been so typified and parodied and it's iconic, but that's only good if you like the material. So for me, being the newbie and more and more the skeptic of this series, I really hope that this isn't the best. I think From Russia With Love was better. Light recommend. You know who's shitting his pants right now is Roger Moore. Oh, my God. <laughs> if you had a problem with Goldfinger, just wait till we get to some of the more films. And I give it a very strong recommend for a lot of reasons both Stuart and Arnie just said. This is, to me, what I come to James Bond films for. All the stuff is working here for me. I enjoy the lightheartedness of it. I enjoy the gadgets, the one-liners. I enjoyed the villain. I loved the henchman. I thought Connery's Bond in here was a lot of fun to watch. I thought everything worked really well. Yes, the second half of this movie, when Bond is pretty much neutered, is an odd choice. Yet, I have watched this movie three times for this review and discussion, and never once was I bored watching that second half. 
I always found something to watch. I enjoyed the performances of Honor Blackman and Gert Froba and especially Oddjob as well. I really see the flaws. I see where everyone comes with the spoofs and all that stuff, but this is a great James Bond film. If you like James Bond films, you probably will like this movie. And I do. So strong recommend from me. And Stuart and I are going to be reviewing all of the James Bond books over at our sister podcast, Books and Nachos. And when we get to this book, Goldfinger, we'll compare the movie a little bit to the book. Definitely catch us over at Books and Nachos if you want to hear about the actual source material for all these James Bond movies. And if you'd like to join in our discussion, give your thoughts on Goldfinger or the Bond series, please head over to our forums by going to our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, and click on the forum links there. You can also go to Facebook. We talk about stuff on Twitter as well. And please, if you like us, please leave a five-star review for us on iTunes so other people can find this retrospective and others that we've done over the past few years. But we're continuing to do these movies for right now, accelerated rate. Now playing, we'll return with Thunderball. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. Bond follows Goldfinger to his base and is captioned, 
captioned. (laughs) (laughs) They put little subtitles. You are out of your mind! <laughs> it's like a finger elephants charging. It's fantastic. I had the record of this as a kid. He's got oddball around to do it. He's got odd job around to do it for him. Yeah, oddball. Odd job's been kind of neutered. But then his other big partner in crime next to Oddball is Pilot Pussy Galore, an English woman. It's Odd Job. You said it Oddball again. <laughs> but then... And it's a brilliant idea that other movies have used since, most recently, Tower Heist. Spoiler alert. Motherfucker! Um, I was going to watch that this weekend! I'm sure you haven't ruined whatever entertainment value there may be in that. I, sh- I sure as hell didn't. Uh, <laughs> and um... But the ladies call me Goldfinger. I thought you were going to go, ah, ah, because of odd job. <laughs>